0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99% for November 26th, 2022. And our intro music is Leonard Cohen's iconic Democracy, which we play all the time just because as we have yet to find anything that expresses our intent with this show any better. You are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula community radio, live-streaming on 101.5 KFGM, no-punctuation.org, and available on podcast at anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under "Voice of the People" radio, buying for the ninety-nine percent. Today we have a duet, keeping it simple.
1: With yes,
0: with Jim, sound man, and the one and only Mark Anderlich. Mark, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. I'm, I'm a little groggy from eating too much yesterday. It was Thanksgiving. Oh. We recorded this on Friday. But uh, and, other than that, I'm doing pretty fine. Uh, fine is good.
0: Fine is good. Uh, we, <laughs> we broadcast from the New Public Library in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish and Kootenai people. We are recording this show from the comfort of our own homes, which are also located in the ancestral homeland of
1: the Salish and Kootenai people. And despite all of our deepest wishes, the pandemic is not quite over yet. We need to hang in there and still by doing our part, by wearing masks when you are inside in public, frequent washing of your hands, et cetera, et cetera. You know the routine. This show is is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio. And we want to give old Mick, as usual, a shout out. Hey, Mick, hope you're doing well. Happy Thanksgiving. Yes, Mick. And happy Black Friday. Is that happy, really? Okay.
0: Um, yeah, well, <laughs> I presume it is. It's, um, it's the extravaganza of living in a consumer society and all the privileges and that that entails.
1: Yes, yes. Well, <clears throat> we have a good show t- today, uh, despite just being a duet. Um, <laughs> and, and we have all kinds of important stuff to talk about. It seems like there is no shortage of topics. Um, But I do think this, uh, what we have done in this show, uh, may be a little extra. Um, What we have for our show is three long and very important articles that look at human rights and its relation to the World Cup, uh, authoritarianism Mm -hmm. and labor. What's more, the articles point the way to how things can be made realistically better. Not just a recitation of everything that is wrong, but concrete and solid solutions moving forward. That should be good. I look forward to hearing that as well as the rest of the show. So I guess I'll stick around. That's also good news, Jim. Otherwise, we will lose our sound footing. Snow and ice notwithstanding, um, mm-hmm. without our song, right. sun, man. <laughs> you can slip on ice and snow. Yes. That's right. And we got plenty of that around here this whole month of November. But also, Jim, another good news, we'd have to dock your pay if you if you didn't stick around. <laughs> yeah, nothing from nothing means nothing. Yeah. <laughs> well, we could, yeah, I have yeah. to figure out that harmony for that one. But anyway, that's <laughs> right. <as> for another <laughs> show. <mean>. Right, <laughs>
0: It's Billy something. I've forgotten.
1: Uh oh uh No, primarily- it's um um oh shoot, who is that? <laughs> It'll come. It'll come to us.
0: Right, right. Um, and we're primarily a station with excellent music programming. So uh Mark, we've sort of missed
1: the mark. I know we so can we could probably get help from <laughs> from other shows and they could say those right. Like those just about those, nim- those nimrods on voice of the people, they right. could think of who that <laughs> yes. Um, so
0: anyway, so, um, our word of the week is human rights. As Nelson Mandela, well said to deny people their human rights is to challenge their very humanity.
1: Yeah, that is a great quote. As Mandela rightly points out that we lose our humanity when we are denied or when we deny others, their human rights. Hmm. And here's
0: where we ask, what does Wikipedia have to say about our word of the week, Mark?
1: Hon- honestly, I don't get paid by Wikipedia for this. But, um, <laughs> um, but yes. I try
0: to pay them.
1: Yes, right. They, I've, yes, I've done that too. I've donated my share. Um, so as regular listeners know, we like to use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. Our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, has suggested that we include this note about Wikipedia, and that note is that each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So, the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. That said, according to our collective wisdom at Wikipedia, quote, human rights are moral principles or norms for certain standards of human behavior and are regularly protected in municipal and international law. They are commonly understood as inalienable fundamental rights to which a person is inherently entitled simply because she or he is a human being and which are inherent in all human beings, regardless of their age, ethnic origin, location, language, religion, ethnicity, or any other status. They are applicable everywhere and at every time in the sense of being universal, and they are egalitarian in the sense of being the same for everyone. They are regarded as requiring empathy in the rule of law. That's empathy in the rule of law in one sentence is usually not, <laughs> not oh. the uh, the norm there. Yeah. <laughs> But um, but it's true, right? It yeah, needs, <laughs> it, it, it needs. I'm a, glad you brought that up. It, it needs a a social culture, you know, that mm-hmm. respects, but also it, it needs the force of law, right? As some mechanism sure. of enforcement. Um, anyway, uh, as imposing an obligation on persons to respect the human rights of others, and it is generally considered that they should not be taken away except as a result of the process based. Of, of as a result of due process based on specific circumstances, end quote from Wikipedia.
0: And that seems very straightforward, but I get the feeling that the term human rights is not as straightforward as it seems.
1: Yeah, your your instincts are, are right there, Jim. Um, <laughs> Even for the day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> really. Um, it's all those trip to fans, right, that are Yeah, Uh, uh, making you the washroom. Yeah. (laughs) Um. So, well, uh, are you following the World Cup, which is the World Soccer Olympics, if you will? It is the most watched sports event on the planet. The sport is known in most of the rest of the world as association football or just football. But I'm wondering, uh, besides the Lions losing to the Lambs uh, (laughs) on Thanksgiving Day that football was there, a, <laughs> have you been watching the world, the other football at all? Um, I, uh,
0: I have felt obligated to pay passing attention to it so I can comment in public discourse. Ah. But, um, yeah, in fact, even at the, when a football game was over at uh, a place where I have my office hours, uh, the world cup came up and it was the USA and England and everyone was paying attention. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: I have, I have been lulled or, you know, drawn into the fray like (laughs) everyone else.
1: Yes. Well, it's uh, it is the most popular sport by far in the whole world. And uh, of course the world cup is, you know, the world championship by nation. So um, Mm hmm.
0: So there you have it. It's uh, it's yeah. the biggest event in the biggest sport. That's it. So how does the World Cup competition have to do with human rights?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that, Jim. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have a show. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the answer is forthcoming. But uh, for the remainder of our Word of the Week segment, we will follow... The November 21st article in Jacobin Magazine by Neil Vallelli entitled, The World Cup Should Make Us Rethink Our Understanding of Human Rights. So there's, how's that for a teaser, Jim? Um, I
0: love being teased, yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and this is how he starts out. It pays not to think too much about the wider environment surrounding football today, soccer today. Well, I, I suppose American football could be included in this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Excess, greed, ferocious self-interest, and stark inequalities are its guiding principles. Repressive states intoxicated on the rewards of fossil capital now use the sport as a pawn in their geopolitical game, while players market useless and ethically corrupt NFTs to their millions of fans. In the face of this depressing scene, it has been encouraging to see several football associations and many international players take a stand on human rights in the lead up to the World Cup in Qatar. And Qatar is located in, on the Persian Gulf in the Middle East, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> across, the, uh, across the Persian Gulf from Iran. Um, surely, no spectator can watch this World Cup without knowing about the desperate plight of migrant workers, the repression of women in everyday life, the crackdowns on press freedom, and freedom to drink beer, by the way. And the oh no, I know that caught your attention, Jim. Yes, <laughs> um, but um, I'm 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 not making fun of the rest of this, and and the punishment of LGBTQ people uh in in cotter it's been it's been well documented in 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 the mainstream mainstream press at least most of it um whether spectators care or not is a different question of course but the signs are that most football fans would prefer that the world cup was not taking place in a country with such a terrible human rights record
0: indeed yeah and uh uh uh, cutter is way up there (laughs)
1: yeah yeah um among other things i mean it's it's uh a punishable offense to exhibit you know gay or lesbian tendencies it's illegal to engage in a strike or to form a union Mm -hmm. it's uh three well probably more than that more like 80 percent of its population are immigrant workers Who have no rights there. In fact, they get their passports taken from them when they get there. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Um, So it's like the deep south
0: 150 years ago. (laughs) Pretty close.
1: Except, except, uh, Cotter and the other uh, many other Middle Eastern countries have a ton of money, which the US South really didn't have uh, as much.
0: They were doing pretty darn well. That's why they thought, oh, well, who needs the Northeast? They're just dragging yeah, us down. But but the, that's a but, topic for another show.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll just say the North had way more resources and money than the South in the Civil War. Um, mm. So, um, anyway. They uh, did Valle- by
0: 1870. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, Valelli continues his exploration of our word of the week, human rights. He says, The International Federation of Association Football, or FIFA, of course, would rather we all focused on the game itself, as if football was somehow divorced from the machinations of global capitalism and its various discontents. It has even blocked the Danish Football Association from printing Human Rights for All on its training shirts. The sport's governing body has rightly been castigated for its attempt to stop associations, players, and fans from voicing their opinions on the human rights abuses in Qatar. But a more challenging question lurks in the background. What does a term like human rights for all really mean? We reflexively employ the term human rights as if it can nullify any moral argument. But how many of us can truly say we know exactly what we mean when we utter the words human rights? So now I'm beginning to doubt myself, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Human rights have a contested and complicated history. In her seminal 1951 book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, the philosopher Hannah Arendt identified what she called the right to have rights which, in the context of Jewish persecution during World War II, only came about when there suddenly emerged millions of people who had lost and could not regain these rights because of the new global political situation, end quote. Arendt had personal experience. As a Jew, she was forced to flee Germany to Paris in 1933. After the Nazi invasion of France in 1940, she managed to find a way to the United States where she was granted citizenship in 1951. Her point about, quote, the right to have rights was that in order to actually possess human rights, a human being has to belong to some kind of political community, usually citizenship of a nation state. Simply being human is not enough in itself. The chilling truth of Arendt's assertion is all too evident today, especially at the borders of nation states, where those perilously crossing seas or traversing dangerous borderlands are deemed rightless and thus expendable and deportable at will. Routinely, it is the very people who are in desperate need of rights that lack the very right to have rights, as Arendt would put it. Unquestionably, many of these rightless people have toiled on the building sites of the stadiums in Qatar that will host the World Cup. Arendt's idea implies that the concept of human rights is not quite as straightforward as we make out. Whereas FIFA tells us to leave the politics out of the World Cup, we often leave the politics out of human rights. But the ways in which we use the language of human rights today, is historically contingent. Human rights are wrapped up in the ideological and political struggles of the second half of the 20th century between collective and individualistic worldviews, social welfare and market freedom, social democracy and neoliberalism. The human rights that we invoke in debates about the Qatar World Cup a representative of, rather than antithetical to, the victory of individualism, market freedom, and neoliberal capitalism in these political struggles.
0: Ah, I, the light just went on. In other words, issues of class and social standing are addressed by the collective worldview and issues of gender, racial, sexual discrimination, or free speech, and free elections are addressed by the individual worldview.
1: Exactly, exactly. And there's a specific history to this, which I didn't know before looking this up. (laughs) Valeli continues his exploration of our Word of the Week. He said, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted by the United Nations General Assembly in 1948 on the back of the horrors of World War II. The non-binding declaration began by recognizing that the inherent dignity and of equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world, end quote. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights set out general standards of human rights. For the first time in any substantive sense, these included economic and social rights, like the right to housing, to food, and to education. The inclusion of such rights in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights not only indicated an emphasis on social welfare in the wake of the Great Depression, but also reflected the strength of labor movements in the mid 20th century. Over the next two decades, Work continued turning these standards into binding obligations, while the composition of the United Nations itself shifted rapidly as a result of decolonization. Human rights were subsequently split into two separate covenants. This is really important. Two Mm -hmm. separate covenants signed in December 1966, one on civil and political rights and the other on economic, social, and cultural rights. With the new post-colonial states joining the UN, it was significant that both covenants recognized the right of all peoples to self-determination. The International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights dealt with what we broadly describe as individual rights. For example, freedom from torture and slavery, procedural fairness in the face of the law, and freedom of movement, thought, and speech. These were largely rights that could be secured through legal frameworks and could be generalized across national borders in some shape or form. The International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, on the other hand, focused on collective rights, such as the right to free education and health care, to join labor unions, and to have social security, paid parental leave, and an adequate standard of living. To enforce such rights required governments to intervene in the free market to allocate resources in fair and equitable ways. Because of this requirement, these rights were much more beholden to the vagaries of nation state politics than were civil and political rights. Notably, in the context of the Cold War, the United States did not ratify the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, and still has not done so to this day. While the inclusion of economic and social rights in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was a significant moment in the history of human rights, as the historian Samuel Moyne has noted, quote, for those states that ratified it, the treaty was deprived of any prospects of enforcement for a long time, end quote. The International mm-hmm. Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, on the other hand, came into existence with a legislative and organizational infrastructure to monitor how nation states were implementing the treaty.
0: Yeah, we are seeing today, well. Wholesome housing is widely considered to be a human right, for example. There is little enforcement of this right in practical terms. In the U.S., we have perhaps millions of people living in substandard or in no housing at all, despite the rather widespread idea that the right to housing is as real as the right to free speech.
1: Yeah, that's right, Jim. Um, And uh, Valali continues this train of thought. Crucially, by the end of each covenant, by the time each covenant became effective in 1976, the swinging 60s and its economic boom had given way to the stagflationary 70s and a global oil crisis, among other economic and political disturbances across the west. The western social democratic political model was fragmenting. Strong welfare states, high taxation systems and wealth redistribution policies had not prevented economic downturns and their associated social il- ills, such as unemployment and growing poverty. A new neoliberal counterorder was emerging in which many intellectuals, politicians, and policy advisors saw the possibility of using individual civil and political rights to protect against collective economic and social rights. Moyne pinpoints the 1970s as the starting point of the human rights revolution, especially with the rapid rise of organizations like Amnesty International. But as he points out, quote, the most extraordinary fact about this human rights revolution from the perspective of ideals about how to distribute the good things in life is that with some key exceptions, it unceremoniously purged attention to economic and social rights, end quote. After the fall of the Soviet Union, many countries in the global north introduced some legal frameworks for the implementation of economic and social rights. But these paled in comparison to the frameworks on civil and political rights. Moreover, without strong welfare states, redistributive policies, and powerful labor movements, which had been dismantled under ascendant neoliberalism in the 1980s, there were effectively few political or social structures structures to disseminate economic and social rights.
0: So the gains were largely undone. Liberalism rears its ugly head again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. uh, Vellelli continues, unsurprisingly, economic and social rights were anathema to neoliberal intellectuals in the mid 20th century, who viewed them as curtailing rather than facilitating human freedom. In her remarkable book, the Morals of the Market, Jessica White charts the intertwining histories of modern human rights and neoliberalism. As White puts it, the challenge for the neoliberals was to overcome the egalitarianism of communal cultures and the assumption that basic welfare was a right and to instill the morals of the market and a culture of individual rights, end quote. The neoliberals thus saw potential in civil and political rights as a way to guard against economic and social rights. Boy, just talking about turning it on its head, right? Um, mm-hmm. Milton Freeman, I know you You. You are a devotee of Friedman. Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> one of my faves. <laughs> um, Gives Chicago sa- a bad name. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <clears throat> he said, for example, uh, argued that property rights are not in conflict with human rights. On the contrary, they are themselves the most basic of human rights and an essential foundation for other human rights, end quote. Uh, yeah, uh, in, his, in, in, in his idealized uh, version of neoliberalism. Um, by placing individual rights like the right to private property above all forms of collective rights, Neoliberal intellectuals and politicians use the language of human rights to insist that any policies of wealth, redistribution, or social welfare were effectively a violation of an individual's right to accumulate their own wealth at the expense of others. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that, yeah, that was um, Marjorie Taylor Greenberg, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. As White observes, quote, These were not the rights to food, clothing, housing, and education enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which sought to offer some protections for market forces. On the contrary, neoliberal, quote, economic rights sought to protect the market freedom of private capital, end quote. Of course, that's what neoliberalism is all about. Um, Yeah. In in this respect, human rights could be mobilized to aid what Quinn Slobodian has referred to as neoliberal market encasement, whereby supranational institutions such as the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank insulate the markets from democratic demands. Governments thus increasingly came to use the concept of human rights to expand existing economic and social inequalities on the basis that each individual is deemed equal when they enter the market, except for one $1, one vote. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They deem the question of how they got there and what happens in the aftermath to lie beyond the reach of human rights, end quote. Uh,
0: you know i'm going to mark 2022 is the year i learned the term market encasement <laughs> the, because yes. that so perfectly describes how um you know the f- financial institutions have have made a pan national or supranational um you know barrier between <laughs> between uh, between producers and of receivers of profit <laughs> yeah yeah
1: yeah it's, you know, it's, it's like it's it's like a cell membrane passes one way doesn't go back the other way and you know i i don't do this too often but i i think a quote from donald trump is perfectly appropriate and <laughs> that he said um this the system is rigged It's totally rigged. He's he's exactly right, but he just went back into playing the rigged game, right, for his own Mm -hmm. his 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 own selfish purposes. Yeah. Um, So so, and not offering much elsewhere. Um, Isn't
0: that it? And you know they've they've twisted the meaning of freedom and human rights to apply to the magic of the marketplace and the freedom of capital and the wealthy. To do as they please.
1: Yeah, you're exactly. Market
0: encasement 101.
1: That's it. Exactly right. And in that vein, Val- Valelli concludes his article like this, <clears throat> quote, This history matters because when human rights are invoked today, including in the context of the Qatar World Cup, it is first and foremost civil and political rights that are deemed to have been violated, such as the right to express one's sexuality in public without fear of punishment. While these rights are, of course, essential, the process by which human rights melded with neoliberalism shows us that civil and political rights can exist alongside other forms of exploitation and deprivation if economic and social human rights are not deemed essential to a functioning society. This neglect of economic and social rights has been evident throughout the current reporting of the Qatar World Cup. Discussions about the treatment of migrant workers identify the various violations of workers' rights, from wage theft to passport confiscation and illegal recruiting fees. But these are understood as violations of each individual worker's right, even if we talk about workers in the plural. The only real exception to this is the right to unionize, which of course I've said is illegal in Qatar. If Qatar had met the principles for the civil and political rights of workers, the exploitation of this migrant labor workforce would be, still have been necessary. These workers could have been granted the freedom to move within Qatar, for example, but few would possess the freedom to stay in their homelands precisely because their own states have not adequately delivered their human rights to food, housing, education, and other social necessities. Appeals to end human rights violations in Qatar focus on the instances of repression without reflecting on the structural causes of that repression. There is much less discussion in the media, for instance, of global capital and the workforce it requires, especially the exploitation of the working poor in the global south by carbon-rich nation-states. If they weren't building football stadiums, another mega-project would have brought millions of migrant workers to Qatar. The problem is not just the repressive nature of the Qatari state, but the way in which global capital organizes and exploits labor. This brings us to a wider point about human rights that takes us beyond the context of Qatar and this World Cup. There are many people in the Global North who, for all intents and purposes, possess civil and political rights. They are free to pretty much. Uh, they are free to be pretty much whoever they want to be under the eyes of the law, even if they might encounter social forms of discrimination. Yet the security of these rights does not stop them from having to use food banks or choose between heating their ho- house or eating a meal. They can choose who they want to be, but they cannot choose to avoid being a victim of austerity. In an alternate universe, one where economic and social rights carries as much weight as civil and political rights, we would be castigating these so-called developed nations for the human rights abuses as well. None of this should dissuade us from discussing human rights in the coming weeks of the World Cup, but it might make us think a bit more about what exactly we mean when we use the term human rights. These two words carry contradictory and even antagonistic resonances that are deeply implicated in the wider economic and social structures of capitalist societies. We cannot effectively critique and counteract human rights violations without also demanding the radical economic and social transformations of our societies. The history of the separation of civil and political rights from economic and social rights, or more crudely of individual rights from collective rights, is fundamental to the functioning of contemporary capitalist democracies. The food banks of Britain form part of the same global tapestry into which the building sites of Qatar are sown. We must keep this in mind throughout and beyond the World Cup.
0: Yes, we certainly must. Uh, Will there be a Jesse Owens moment (laughs) at at the Qatar World Cup? Oh, you can... I don't know how it will.
1: Yeah, you can... unless some of the workers decide to uh, go on strike and in, in front of, you know, world's cameras or something like that uh, mm-hmm. or that players do that or coaches. I, I did notice one really interesting thing, the coach of the English team uh, when they, f- they first played um, the Re- Republic of Iran uh, for their first game and in gotcha. the co and the coach for the, uh, it was interesting what the coach of England had said after, uh, the coach of Iran had been just like, uh, uh, asked tons of questions, not about the, their football team, but about human rights abuses in Iran. And, mm-hmm. um, and so the English coach, right. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, actually the, uh, uh, the Iranian players refused to sing the national anthem there. There's one. Right. Aspect. Thanks for um, reminding me. But, um, but also, uh, you know, the, the coach of England was asked, well, you know, what about that? And, the, and I thought it was, I thought it was pretty wise and pretty gracious on the, on the coach instead of like putting the Iranian team i mean they're a soccer team they're a football team right that's mm-hmm. uh, i mean they are connected to this wider world but uh but th- he also said well we're having problems in our country as well and we hope to provide an excellent game to entertain the citizens of of our country and uh, citizens of all around the world who are going through tough times and i thought that was a pretty gracious way of <laughs> avoiding answering the the, the stupid questions yeah. from the press. Right. It was being set up and he ducked. Mm-hmm. Not, not only ducked, but he, on but he also he also expressed a little bit of solidarity with both yeah. the English people and the Iranian people in that comment, I think. so.
0: Yeah, very so. good point. It's not just saying, well, we're tarred by the same brush, but right. we together um, share these problems.
1: Well, he didn't say that. He said okay, okay. that we we are suffer- people of, well, it's pretty close, Jim, but in this difference between human rights on individual rights versus mm-hmm. collective rights, right? This whole idea that this author is um, talking about, um, the English coach brought in the economic suffering of Britons, of, oh. of English people, as a way of sort of, I mean, he didn't quite say there's violations of human rights, but he kind of, okay, sort of I insinuated that uh, along and in, in somewhat in in kind of a very interesting mm-hmm. way of showing some solidarity. I, I I thought that was a way more politic than than uh, our current Secretary of State could ever hope to be. So, oh yeah. <laughs> Close my eyes. I'm blinking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't blink. In I'm showing solidarity
0: visit. there for ophthalmologists. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So,
0: uh, I, is this about time for the COVID report?
1: The COVID report. Boom. <laughs> we should have little <laughs> dramatic music. Okay, I'll talk to our
0: music director. <laughs> So uh, as usual, lots of news to cover from this week. What's first in our current news, Mark?
1: Yeah, and so um, uh, despite 23 months of vaccines against COVID-19 being available in the U.S., the pandemic is still with us. According to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, the overall number of new daily daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is now steady at a rate of about 41,000 cases a day down from over 1.3 million per day on January 10th, 2022, which by the way was the by far the highest rates for the US during the entire pandemic as still this year. However, now many scientists and others question the validity and accuracy of the CDC's case numbers, Because of the prevalence of unreported home tests, lack of uniform data reporting requirements by the states, and the incompetency of the CDC. The highest per capita rates of COVID infection today are in France, South Korea, Georgia, Taiwan, Japan, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, Italy, Austria, and Australia in that order, where new variants of COVID-19 virus are making the rounds. At over 1,140,000 deaths, uh, that number is in question as well, the U.S. is still by far the world's leader in COVID-19 deaths. This is equivalent to the population of the city of San Jose, California. Hmm. The U.S. has so far accounted for at least 16% of all deaths in the world, and even with unreliable data, for 15% of the confirmed cases all with still only 4% of the world's population.
0: Well, yet again, we say, those are grim things to be exceptional at.
1: (laughs) Indeed, they are. Indeed, they are.
0: And um, what's the situation now in the great state of Montana?
1: Well, according to the state of Montana COVID-19 website and the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, Montana has had 3,597 deaths from COVID. That's 20 deaths in the last two weeks, averaging about 10 deaths a week in Montana. This total number of deaths is about equal to that of the population of the town of Glasgow, Montana. As of Friday, Montana is averaging a steady rate of about 126 new documented cases a day, Fully 25% of all Montanans have had or have COVID. And there are currently 66 people hospitalized with the virus, up 15 from two weeks ago. We've been saying this since February 2020, and we will keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when in public spaces indoors, to distance themselves from others as best you can when indoors. And to frequently wash your hands. If we are going to beat this pandemic, solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. Yes,
0: it is essential to union organizing.
1: That's right. Well. Yes. Right. Good point. Getting ahead of myself. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you got another story, Mark? I do. So this is the second of our of our three long articles, and. Um, This one is another in our series of reflections on the elections in the United States that just happened. Uh, This time, Adolf Reed, and some of you will be familiar with his name, uh, weighs in on Trumpism, authoritarianism, and the current political situation. Regular listeners will know that Reed is an American professor emeritus of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, specializing in studies of issues of racism and U.S. politics. He has taught at Yale, Northwestern, and the New School for Social Social Research, and he has written on racial and economic inequality. He is a contributing editor to The New Republic and has been a frequent contributor to The Progressive, The Nation, and other left-wing publications. He is a founding member of the U.S. Labor Party, now moribund, but... Uh, no. He was one of the he was one of the leaders of that. The following are excerpts from the transcript provided by the November fourth edition of Portside um, of Reed's keynote speech entitled "How Serious Is the Authoritarian Threat in the U.S. What Can We Do About It." Reed presented this speech at a conference uh, on anti-fascism in the twenty-first century held at Hofstra University. On November second and third,
0: mm, fresh we, stuff.
1: Yeah, very fresh. I mean, it's like I'm. I'm um, I haven't put it any put any uh, preservatives or anything. So this is right. this is like uh, absolutely unadulterated uh, stuff. Right, right. Right. This and this is the good stuff. Um, so read read uh, again. This is highly edited, but um, uh, Reed says. With a startling quickness that bespeaks the depth and breadth of their organizational capacity, the Republican right has mobilized an alliance of committed reactionaries, opportunist political operatives, anti-vaxxers, survivalists, and other more or less dangerous anti-government hobbyists, internet conspiracists, unhinged psychopaths, militant anti-communists, zealous anti-abortionists, and other Christian fanatics, would-be libertarians, gun nuts, unambiguous fascists, and ethno-nationalists. Actual, in other words, not simply people who say or do things that affront liberal anti-racists, but actual white supremacists, xenophobes, sexists, and anti-LGBTQ militants, and desperate people seeking answers and solutions to the material and emotional insecurities that overwhelm their lives. And, of course, uh, added to this is the grifters who follow alongside the herd looking to pick off the weak and vulnerable. Now, I'm just going to stop there. That's all Reed saying. that's That itself is a worth the price of admission, don't you think, Jim?
0: <laughs> it, it, it is. It is. It is. And as I read, I... Kept thinking. Well, they didn't mention. Oh, yeah, he did, uh, and he didn't. Oh, yeah, I got it there. Um, so hes So he's that is. Uh, yeah, he's. That is it. the Granger catalog of grievances. It's all there.
1: It's all right. All, it, it, all they
0: it, lack is the shipping uh, charge.
1: Yes, and I. Yes, the the manifest, right? Um, the um, yeah, I. It, it's uh, quite complete of the coalition. Of the mm-hmm. right wing Republicans. Now, there's, of course, a lot of Republicans who aren't right wing. So apologies to them. But this is really the, the right wing uh, coalition that is formed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, notwithstanding, the, and this is Reed again, okay, notwithstanding their idiosyncratic identities and issues, Trumpism has developed as the umbrella under which they converge <laughs> with MAGA. Uh, make America great again, as the symbol that condenses all their disparate aspirations. And that just didn't happen either. It's the result of years of propaganda and organizing. Take a hint, right? Um, yes. He, he continues, um, yet although characterizations of the Republican Party as having become a death cult and the like can be arresting as metaphor, They miss the vector plotted by this movement's political trajectory and the gravest dangers it poses. Um, It is useful to recall Margaret Thatcher's three most infamous dicta. Okay, now, Margaret Thatcher was the uh, prime minister of Britain in the 1980s. Oh, yes. um, And she's kind of the original neoliberal capitalist or the the first one, to ascend to political power and and also to uh, have a full-throated version of neoliberalism unleashed mm-hmm. on the United Kingdom. And so her three most infamous neoliberal dicta are, one, there is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women in their families, and no government can do anything except through people, and people look to themselves first. That's Quote, mm. a direct quote from Thatcher. Number two, a direct quote. Economics are the method. The object is to change the soul, end quote. Oh, how profound. <laughs> and, and that is, yes, and and that also is a, a neoliberal dicta. And three, when asked to identify her greatest achievement, she replied, Tony Blair and the new labor. <laughs> Ooh, that. That must hurt. Uh, She said, we forced our opponents to change their minds, end quote. The extent to which that sort of solipsistic individualism has spread in American life, irrational or not, reflects the success of the Thatcherite vision. Yeah, it's astounding how much she
0: reflected the same mood that um, uh, the B actor did in the same time period over here.
1: Yeah, Yep. Well, he somehow he, he followed her. I'll, I'll just say that. Oh, okay, and and he, that's probably
0: true because um, he's just a guy that reads lines. He doesn't have <laughs> he doesn't have to write the script.
1: Yeah, Thatcher so was a Thatcher was a true believer, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And this and this is uh, going back to Reed again. <clears throat> the reality that the processes of neoliberalization, at their core, rest uneasily with popular democracy makes reckoning with this right-wing tendency's growth all the more urgent. Insulation of policy processes, as much as possible from popular oversight at local, national, and international Mm. levels, is at the heart of neoliberal accumulation. To that extent, it is naive to presume a capitalist class preference for democratic over authoritarian government, particularly if the democratic form comes with an opening for efforts to impinge on capital's prerogatives. Even if we take the corporate rush to affirm support for racial justice after George Floyd's murder as expressing genuine endorsement of anti-racist equality of opportunity in opposition to unequal and criminal hyper-policing and not tainted by opportunism, is it reasonable to expect that, say, Uber, Amazon, McDonald's, or Goldman Sachs would actively fight for a form of government that might regulate their labor market practices and methods of accumulation and force them to pay taxes against one that promised to protect them? As Walter Ben Michaels and I have observed repeatedly, earnest institutional and individual commitment to an anti-disparitarian ideal of justice, which is Uh, uh, you know, for the sake of our word of the week, is the individualistic personal rights uh, uh, ideal of justice is entirely compatible with support for a society that becomes ever more sharply class skewed and unequal in the aggregate. There's that pesky neoliberalism again. Yeah, 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 and it's everywhere. And Um, You kind of notice, I think, uh, how uh, he's also making this distinction between the rights of individuals, which is perfectly compatible with capitalism, neoliberalism, versus the communal rights, the collective rights of having uh, the right to housing, the right to having food and adequate income. All of those are antithetical to neoliberal capitalism. Um.
0: yeah weren't we just talking about this about 45 minutes exactly exactly it's looping back it's looping back the the words have opposite meanings right to people and they're sure they're right
1: (laughs) but they're not that's correct um so back to almost go ahead mark oh i was go ahead you finish yeah I, i i
0: a related observation is the the pastorpreneur that f- takes his helicopter to his megachurch and uh, gets off, runs underneath the rotating blades, gets to the pulpit in his $2,000 suit and talks all about the sacrifices of Jesus and give up all your worldly belongings and follow me.
1: Yeah, <laughs> Right. Yeah. More, more likely. Yeah. The preacher is saying, follow me, become, you too can be rich like me. Uh, right. if, 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 if <laughs> um, which of course, uh, it, it's a, uh, it's a Ponzi scheme, right? It's, uh, mm-hmm. it requires more and more suckers to pay in in order for it to, right. to pay off. Um, so that's why they're
0: pro life, they need that population increase.
1: So, there they you have go, a bigger market base. Yeah,
0: I, it that all makes sense.
1: It, it, it's
0: Thank all God together, for the right? Community radio. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: so, well, back to Reed. Um, he said, <laughs> So far, I focused on the nature of the authoritarian threat, an assessment with which I assume many may agree, at least in general terms. Although the two are related, the more important question is how to combat that threat. I want to stress that in my view, the only hope for thwarting that tendency is to concentrate our efforts on formulating, organizing around, and agitating for an ensemble of policies that reinvigorate the notion of government in the public good, which has been a casualty of more than four decades of bipartisan neoliberalism. The pessimistic nostalgia that Trumpists and other authoritarians propagate and mobilize around is most consequently the result of decades of bipartisan failure to provide concrete remedies that address the steadily intensifying economic inequality and insecurity that have driven so much of the working class to the wall. We need to provide an alternate vision that proceeds unabashedly from the question, what would be the thrust and content of public policy if the country were governed by and for the working class majority? It's a great question. Yeah. Um,
0: I'd like to see it answered.
1: Yes, yeah, <laughs> me too. Um, so Reed continues to wake up in the morning. <laughs> well, it's it, we're gonna have to work for this, right? Um, so mm-hmm. of course Reed says, of course, for the moment, very much hinges on the Democrats beating back or holding off the Republican electoral efforts next Tuesday. So this was before the election this month, but building a broad working class-based movement is the only way we might successfully defeat the reactionary right, right wing, and we need uh, between now and 2024 to begin trying to build the sort of popular movement that we need. And then we must be clear that such a left movement does not yet exist, no matter how many internet announcements of imminent victory show up daily on our various electronic devices. There are many leftists and people who support leftist causes and programs, but a left with real political capacity has been absent for so long in the United States that even most sympathetic people can't conceptualize what one would look like, how we, would, how we could distinguish it from the, quote, pageantry of protest or the effluvia of premature proclamation and branding. Several years ago, Mark Dudzik and I suggested salient features of an institutionally significant left. And he's going to give a little introduction Mm -hmm. here. By left, we mean a reasonably coherent set of class-based and anti-capitalist ideas, programs, and policies that are embraced by a cohort of leaders and activists who are in a position to speak on behalf of and mobilize a broad constituency. Such a left would be or would aspire to be capable of setting the terms of debate in the ideological sphere and marshalling enough social power to intervene on behalf of the working class in the political economy. Some measures of that social power include ability to affect both the enterprise wage, which means what you get when you go to work, and Mm -hmm. the social wage, which means what the government does to support you. Uh, power to affect urban planning and development regimes, strength to intervene in the judicial and regulatory apparatus to defend and promote working-class interests, power not only to defend the public sphere from encroachment by private capital, but also to expand the domain of non-commoditized public goods and generally to assert a force capable of influencing even shaping public policy in ways that advance the interest and security of the working-class majority. Ah, that sounds like a job for the labor movement. Yes, and I agree, Jim, and I agree. This is what he's leading up to, how the barely active labor movement of today can resuscitate itself and do this kind of work to save the American democracy project. Uh, and we'll look at that more closely in our, our last long story about the strikes in Ontario. You are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula community radio, live streaming also on 1015kfgm.org. Uh, back to Adolf Reed. Uh, Clearly, this is not the sort of formation that can be generated overnight, and that has long been a catch-22 for leftists, especially those whose political thinking is shaped by moral outrage or its practical expression, activism. On the one hand, and here I think, and I'm just pulling this out here, I think he's referring to um, uh, Jane McAlevey's idea that Uh, We need to be organizing, not just being active. Activism and mobilizing are important, but organizing, deep organizing, is the missing piece from what we see from a lot of activities. Um, Right. So, and we can get into that more in the next section here, but... um, On the one hand, the magnitude of the immediate dangers we face is so great that we don't have time to concentrate only on the sort of slow organizing that building such a movement necessitates. And this moment's urgency is at least as great as any other, any of us has faced in our lifetimes. On the other hand, arguably one of the reasons we're in the current predicament is that a left, as Dudzik and I describe, has been absent for decades. So even as surviving the 2022 election looms in our political calculations, as Walter Ben Michaels notes regarding the stakes of the current moment, even those of us who don't love liberal democracy will love even less what we'll get from Josh Hawley at at all. <laughs> um, this is, read again, we aren't going to be able to turn the tide against the rising reaction unless we begin to organize in that way and to rebuild broad working class confidence in a public good approach to government. It's clearer now than ever that only by agitating for a solidaristic political agenda and perspective on politics, can we even hope to forestall much less defeat the assault that has already moved well in from the horizon. And I might add that, uh, you know, some some of this this aspiration is certainly something that the Democratic Socialists of America want to pursue, and there's other groups as well, but there are not that many. Um, mm-hmm. so, so this is Reed again. An implication of that imperative is that the challenge of beating back surging reaction must go well beyond electing Democrats. In fact... Since 2015, we've seen ample evidence, first in their intense mobilizations against the Bernie Sanders insurgencies in 2016 and 2020, that mainstream Democratic elites are more concerned with preempting emergence of a left faction within the party than with combating the rising authoritarian or fascist tide in the polity. I think that's absolutely true uh, uh, within the elites of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, and and as a side note, he says, I know some object that the Pelosi, Schumer, Clinton wing of the party were so hostile towards Sanders, not because he was too far left, but because they were convinced he couldn't win. However, that is a distinction without a difference. They were convinced that he couldn't win because they embraced the view associated with the Clintonite party's embrace of neoliberalism that winning elections require chasing the phantasm of the moderate, socially liberal, fiscally conservative, Republican voter, or what the pollsters and political scientists fetishize as the median voter. That was a side note. So, Back to his main point, Uh, Reed says, This offers a sharper perspective on the flood of support for anti racist arguments and gestures after George Floyd's murder. It also, in addition to how genuine the political and business elite were who embraced it, shifted the focus of progressive politics away from economic inequality. Anti racism in this way functioned much as Trumpist and other reactionary forces. Did in mobilizing race and other ideologies of ascriptive difference to undermine politics based on, fashioning working class solidarity, solidarities. It is telling in this regard as well that in 2022, Democrats more or less concertedly solicited people of color, women, or LGBTQIA candidates to embody literally progressive values rather than candidates who, first of all, stood. For working class programs and agendas, of course. Uh, and by the way, uh, Reed is black, and he grew up in the South. So <laughs> well, just just for that
0: way, you really know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, and that and that and this is uh, Reed is is always been good on this. Um, so of course, we can't possibly generate anything on the scale of what Dudzik and I describe by 2024 and the election's outcome as likely will not pose new, more immediate, and possibly desperate challenges and dangers. The larger goal of building a grounded working-class movement, however, should inform how we go about responding to the immediate imperative of turning back the reactionary assault. Trumpism's success also has shown that making headway on this front will require undoing decades of bipartisan disparagement, of public goods and propagation, uh, both the Thatcherite fiction, that there is no realm beyond the individual, and Democrats at best self-deluding fantasies about doing more with less. Um, And he had quoted both Carter and uh, Clinton Mm -hmm. and Obama for all of those kinds of uh, statements that they made during their presidencies. Many readers will recall from the 2008 presidential campaign, the agitated cries among McCain supporters to (laughs) keep your government hands off my Medicare, end quote, right? Which is Uh, uh, kind of funny on its surface, uh, right?
0: uh, Yeah. There's that duality between uh, reality and the... The the red meat talking points.
1: Yeah, well, and it's it's the power of propaganda too. Uh, exactly. Let, let, let us acknowledge that. Um, Reed says there is ample social science literature finding that whether or not one recognizes that government is the source of benefits one receive has an impact on trust in and regard for government. I'll cite only one, and so this is this is important, right? This. Uh, shows how the American people aren't thinking Democrat-Republican, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll cite only one study I know most intimately, political scientist Ashley Talevi in a sophisticated study of Medicaid-managed care and federal contraceptive policies, and it's called Making the Political Personal, Health Insurance, State Visibility, and Civic Perceptions, Unpublished PhD Dissertation, in the Department of Political Science, University of Pennsylvania in 2017. So if you want to go look this up, there's the site for that. Um, Anyway, uh, uh, Ashley Televis had found that recipients of the services who knew they were provided by the state had more favorable views of government than those who, principally because service provision had been privatized or outsourced, did not know. This research, with which dovetails with experience from the Debs Jones Douglas Institute training, with rank and file union workers on economic inequality and the healthcare crisis, underscores that privatization and outsourcing are not are not merely objectionable insofar as they turn the public sector into a woodlot for profiteers. <laughs> they also have been instrumental in implanting Thatcher's first dictum as common sense. So remember. Uh, good old Maggie Thatcher, her first dictum was, there is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families and no government can do anything except through people and people look to themselves first. So uh, he's saying that uh, that making that first dictum common sense, uh, uh, proliferation of that so-called common sense marks the success of her second dictum which is uh economics are the method the object is to change the soul which means forget about any government help that's changing the soul means um quit being quit being a a a welfare with your hand out you lazy bum that's that's the kind of soul she's changing through economics right Mm -hmm. um so,, uh, uh, which, by the way, I've known relatively few of those people in my whole life. <laughs> I have known a few, but they're definitely not even close to uh, e- even close to any sort of majority about American workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the the proliferation of that common sense uh, also marks the Democratic Party's trajectory from Bill Clinton to Biden presidency. Is testament to the boast in her third, which is her greatest achievement, and that is changing the opposing party viewpoints to agree with hers. Right? right. To agree with neoliberalism, mm-hmm. and certainly uh, Clinton through Biden, they generally are in agreement with neoliberalism. Although Biden is probably broken from that more than any of the rest. Um, certainly, maybe even more than Jimmy Carter. Well, yeah, Jimmy Carter, yeah, maybe that you, we could argue that. Um, so uh, we can, we can. This is uh, read again. We can only even chip away at those critical setbacks on the ideological front if leftists, including left or progressive leaning advocacy and interest groups, and most of all the labor movement, lobby and agitate for that public good perspective and approach.
0: So Reed sees the undermining of
1: belief in the public
0: good, that together we can solve our problems and lift up each other as job number one in fighting off the Trumpists and other authoritarians?
1: Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's what he's saying. I think you're right about that. Um, here's more specifically what he'd like to see. Uh, actions that can be taken by ordinary people at the local level, I might add. So, and this is where we get to the solutions, right? I mean, we've identified, we're good at identifying the problem, more or less. He says uh, concretely, that means taking advantage of the openings, ambivalent and limited as they may be, to press where possible in our own networks, our own workplaces, our civic engagements, and our institutional affiliations in in the public realm for those with ready access to it. For the administration's infrastructure plans to reinvigorate the public sector, not simply stimulate private investment opportunities, it means similarly working to anchor climate change policy to job creation and a serious commitment to make whole those workers who are displaced in the economic and social reorganization that addressing climate change requires. It means also agitating and building public support for initiatives like postal banking and eliminating the income cap on Social (laughs) Security tax, even though the latter may produce little more than a holding action against Biden's long long demonstrated proclivities regarding, quote, entitlements. Hmm. So in the electoral domain, at the Debs Jones Douglas Institute, we have observed in our worker trainings that even allusion to candidates or signature partisan issues for many workers sets off alarm bells of distrust, barriers of unnecessary resistance to our training program. Others have recorded the same phenomenon, noting that even in states that characteristically vote Republican, voters have also passed ballot initiatives that raise the minimum wage and legislate other pro worker initiatives that republicans steadfastly oppose this underscores the importance of getting outside of the democratic republican divide in gearing electoral interventions to push clear working-class programs and policies that in turn suggests that electoral engagement can be more productively directed toward pursuit of ballot initiatives that place clear working class oriented proposals before the electorate electorate with all the noise and confusion uh, that accompany candidate center campaigns. And I've noticed this, too. Right. I mean, we've noticed Mm -hmm. this in the past. Right. In the most recent election. Right. And people got wide support. Exactly. Court. Yeah, very wide support, and and it's the candidates themselves that elicit a lot more distrust, and it's not as clear mm-hmm. cut. Who's who's going to fight for me? Well, you know what? The candidates both say they will, and you know, and it, 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 it remains to be seen. There are some generally good candidates, obviously, but because uh, politics has really gotten so uh, polarized, the, the Republicans have been so, uh, uh, absolutely at the benefit of the wealthy and Democrats have, have shown to be talk a good game, but not do much. Um, you know, people can't trust either side. I think that's what he's saying. Um, uh, let's see. Finally, he said, um, I sometimes hear that I don't want people ever to be happier to celebrate political victories, says Reed, uh, being, <laughs> being, oh, a da- being a dour person, perhaps. So I'll close with what may at first blush may not seem like an upbeat note, which I'll preface by pointing out that a few years ago, I binged watched several political films from the 1960s and early 1970s. Oh. Films like The Organizer, The Battle of Algiers, Z, and State of Siege, all in one day. (laughs) I was struck that each film ends with a defeat, but that each was broadly understood in its moment as as a profoundly optimistic film. I realized that such films couldn't be made now. What? No superheroes or magical intervention? (laughs) Fast forward to the present and the perils facing us. During this past summer, I faced up to the likelihood that even if we began to generate a working-class movement of the sort that could meet the challenge, the greater likelihood is that we won't be able to defeat the fascist tide. It has too great a head start because it is so deeply rooted institutionally. And that led me to consider that our efforts now may be more for those who will be around when the authoritarian regime begins to unravel and who will be looking for ways forward. I found that thought immediately somewhat depressing, if not defeatist, which is why I more or less consciously repressed it for a while. After all, an implication of that realization is that, and this is Reed speaking, as a 75-year-old, not only could this November 8th or maybe at best 2024 uh, well be the last real election in the U.S. in my lifetime, Another more significant implication is that we simply can't hope to fend off the authoritarian threat at this juncture. However, I mentioned my sad little epiphany to a colleague who has been experiencing the same concerns about our lack of capacity for mounting responses to the reactionary horrors. I was surprised that his response was elation because like the sensibilities of that earlier left from the 1960s, the colleague understands and is rooted in appreciation of protracted struggle and saw that in that observation, the basis for a practical sense of purpose. And that recognition of the protracted character of our struggle is a reminder, first, that as a left, we face the same imperative to build a politics of broad Working class solidarity, no matter whether we hope to defeat fascism now or farther down the road than we c- can currently envision. And that a realistic source of optimism in a moment like this is recognition that the ruling class's fantasies of its omnipotence are just that. End quote.
0: Oh,
1: yeah. Fantasies of its omnipotence are just
2: that.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yep. so that's that's the reversal of the of the seemingly tragic ending which really just foreshadows the ultimate victory
1: yeah and, and it's hard not <clears throat> to be depressed I mean there's lots mm-hmm. of people I know um, people that aren't leftist or or I mean they're they're as he well put they feel like their backs are against the wall and they're saying there's got to be something better than this and it's like it, it's just everything's going to crap right? Um, but I think what he's saying really is that, uh, you know, the harder they come, the harder they fall. Um, uh, but also we have to be about the work, about the work of organizing a real working class politics that <clears throat> revivifies the idea, makes it, makes it right, imaginable right. and it makes it real to people that collectively through our government, we can, uh, secure these rights for housing that we can secure the rights to have enough food to have enough income to have uh adequate health care you know we can go the list is long and that we can do this while maintaining our individual rights at the same time
0: yeah and that's and that ties it all together it's where we started and i i admire your allusion to reggae music bringing in jimmy cliff (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I'll raise you one. Uh, Bob Marley saying, "If if you are the big tree, I am the small axe ready to cut you down."
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. So there there is hope in the in the uh, as uh, oh I forget who would say this, but I, I think it comes from some uh, some religious teacher, I believe. Um is it that, start with a J? Um well, I think maybe yes, some of Is it more
0: more of a contemporary figure.
1: Well, more of a contemporary figure but maybe one of the uh, acolytes of J uh is mm-hmm. that um finding the hope in in uh in the realm of hopelessness, right? That there is Yes. There still is hope in it, total mm-hmm. hopelessness uh and a uh, lots of people are feeling that right now and um Hopefully, this show. We want to be hopeful on this show. We want to provide answers that people can do. We want to inspire mm-hmm. people. We don't want to. We don't want to regurgitate the hopelessness that really is uh, pretty endemic in, in our society. So we hope exactly. we do
0: that. Except when we do the COVID report.
2: Yeah, <laughs> except when we right. right.
0: That's, <laughs> that's right. That's, that's when we go off script.
1: That's when um. We go off.
0: Mark, you're on a roll. Any good stories for us?
1: Yeah, well, the, you've the, already had our last one is uh, maybe the most hopeful, um, mm-hmm. and uh, also uh, is uh, has it fills in a little more about building this working class movement, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of and for the working class, and <clears throat> and uh, and this is all you know, like. Our last show, this is a good news story from our neighbors to the north. Um, uh, and that's and that's not you know Chili Willy and Santa Claus. That's right. uh <laughs> 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 yeah, that's uh, that's Canada. Um, mm-hmm. in, in our last show we read from press accounts of the successful strike in Ontario to defeat a really bad bill that would have made it illegal for public sector work workers from striking among other things. This time we read from the same events, uh, but we read from Jane McAlevey's article about these workers and her analysis of their methods, which appeared in the November 22nd edition of the nation magazine. Again, this is fresh. I mean, yes. the ink is, the ink is still warm on, on, on this. Um, and um, as regular listeners know, and Jim, you, you're you familiar with uh, Ms. McAlevey. Uh, Indeed. And from the show, we have frequently highlighted uh, McAlevey in our shows, principally because she has revived, systematized, and teaches others, uh, including myself, including uh, lots of people in Montana by now, right. uh, maybe 40. 40- Co-host, Linda Gillison. Linda Gillison um and uh, teaches others on the CIO method of worker organizing um which we'll get into in the for- before here now the CIO mm-hmm. stands for the Congress of Industrial Organizations mm-hmm. um, which was a labor uh a union um uh, alliance a union coalition formed in the 1930s uh that really took advantage of the tremendous uh, uh organizing opportunities that arose during then and really helped create uh, the labor movement, uh, at least the foundations of it um, today, and is the CIO part of the AFL-CIO, which later emerged in the 1950s. So um, anyway, which I think uh, this method of worker organizing that McAlevey advocates, has studied, advocates for, and trains workers on uh, at least I think is not only a critical ingredient in the revival of the labor movement, but also in the eventual defeat of neoliberal capitalism and uh, fascism and authoritarianism in this country, which uh, we all think is a scourge on our society and is in a, is is in which are in the way uh, neoliberalism is in the way to address the real and present, Problems facing ordinary people, such as inflation, housing, and climate damage. Um, So McAlevey begins her analysis this way, quote, while tens of thousands of unionized workers in the United States were running phone banks and pounding the pavement in the final push to save democracy in crucial local, state, and midterm elections, nearly 60,000 of their counterparts in Ontario, Canada, waged and won significant victories in two historic supermajority strikes. And supermajority strikes, for those you don't know, are at least 90% of the workers participate in that strike. 90%. That's a supermajority strike. Um, that's a lot, by the way. Um, on Monday, November 7th, some 2,200 workers walked off the job at Geo Transit's bus division, Idling inner city buses across the greater Toronto area and disrupting commuters trying to access North America's third largest public transit system after New York and Mexico City, the bus drivers, station attendants, maintenance crews, cleaners and transit safety workers walked off the job in a strike that lasted four days with 100% unity, not a single worker crossed the picket line. Mm hmm. The timing couldn't have been better, and it wasn't an accident. As Alex Jackson, a station attendant for five years, explained, the climate was really just perfect for the strike. Since the Canadian Union of Public Employees, or CUPE, uh, uh, this is Jackson speaking, educational workers were going on strike. The grueling pandemic shook people up, and top managers like Phil Verster, CEO of GeoTransit's parent, Metrolinks were getting a huge raises, end quote. The iron was hot, and they had spent months making sure it would be. Three days earlier, on Friday, November 4th, over 55,000 mostly women, uh, CUPE, uh, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, education support workers, had walked out in a high-stakes illegal strike. Let me say that again. It was an illegal strike oh like wildcat (laughs) well kind of yeah um it was a high stakes strike for sure and and making it illegal or having it illegal was uh, very much so they Mm -hmm. shut down schools throughout the entire province from thunder bay all the way to ottawa and north ontario's conservative premier doug ford had hastily rammed through a draconian anti-strike law, Bill 28, to unilaterally impose a contract on workers and employ a so-called nuclear option of legally overriding the constitutional protection of the right for workers to strike and bargain collectively, like Wisconsin did back in the day, like 10, 12 years ago. Um, Undeterred by threatened daily fines of up to $500,000 a day plus $4,000 per day per striker, uh, which is about the only way they can enforce that uh, no-strike clause. Undeterred by threatened daily fines, when the education workers resume their walkout on Monday, November 7th, the bulk of the greater Toronto region had no schools and no commuter buses. Labor leaders throughout Ontario and across the country were threatening what they called a general strike if Premier Ford didn't repeal and bury the precedent-setting anti-strike bill. Faced with the palpable strength of the CUPE strike, the simultaneous geo-transit shutdown, and the looming threat of escalation to other unions now that he'd thrown down the gauntlet, the notoriously stubborn Premier, very much Trump-like, um right. reverse even less um
0: even a bigger you know bmi index
1: yeah right yeah um uh he nevertheless reversed course and agreed to repeal the law and return to the table if the education workers agreed to end their walkout all right. So they, so they won a victory here. Uh, workers did. Mm-hmm. These two unions did. Although both strikes got far less coverage here in the U.S., it's vitally important for us to understand what these two separate but linked victories teach us about the collective fight ahead. The education workers had a second strike for yesterday, Monday, November 21st, but they mm. reached a tentative agreement by their 5 p.m. Sunday deadline. That agreement needs to be seen, discussed, debated, and ratified by the members over the coming week. And low enthusiasm from the negotiation team hints that this fight may not be over yet. So watch this space. Stay tuned to uh, Voice of the People and, and watch for Jane McAlevey's next take on this. Any event, this is McAlevey again. There's plenty the two strikes share that points a path forward for workers everywhere not just Canada. Unions throughout Canada sense the existential threat Ford's constitutional uh, hardball posed to all of them. Labor leaders across many different sectors in Ontario were pledging to uh, commit to building to a general strike within a week in order to bury the legislation for good, teaching other premiers in other provinces a preemptive lesson in the process. Other unions, in addition to the CUPE workers continuing their fight, have an immense amount to learn from how their carefully built capacity to strike allowed them to successfully bury the government's invocation of Section 33 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, mm-hmm. better known as the Notwithstanding Clause, to override the education union's right to have a say in their working conditions.
0: Got the G- it.
1: Yeah. So, um, so this this was this was pretty uh, fundamental to unions' rights in Ontario, the lo- the most mm-hmm. populated province in Canada. Um, so she she goes in uh, to describe here uh, with a little bit of detail, which actually I think is important because uh, how often do you get to hear these kind of details? Um, and and it, and it is a map for the way forward, I I believe. Um, the geotransit workers of the Amalgamated Transit Workers Union Local 1587, however, had actually done the spade work to be ready. They weren't threatening to rush to join the effort a week later. They had surveyed the regional labor landscape and were already out on strike that morning, helping to create a larger crisis the provincial government would have to resolve constructively rather than by threats. The leaders of both unions had kept each other informed about the potential for an early November strike. The CUPE workers' negotiations had been tough going, and there was plenty of signs they would have to resort to direct action if the provincial government didn't meet the basic demands of higher wages and improved staffing and job security for the workers. Meanwhile, the transit workers had also been in negotiations since April of 2022, and had been working with an expired contract since June. Both the CUPE education workers and the ATU transit workers have been doing the hard work of deep organizing for at least a year in preparation for their strikes, underscoring for us that the best strikes, where a supermajority of workers shut down their workplace, are the product of methodical strategic planning and not whipped up in a matter of days by a lone heroic worker rightfully denouncing injustice. That's... That's a note to labor leavers. if you're listening yes. to this. It's just that you're going to call a general strike ain't going gonna, ain't gonna to happen. It's got to be, mm-hmm. you got to work at it um, for a long time, for a year maybe. <clears throat> so this is uh, McAlevey again. Strikes that can defeat massively bad legislation as the CUPE workers did and win robust anti-privatization language and job security as the transit workers did don't spontaneously combust they require an unswerving belief that everyday workers are completely capable of systematically building the power necessary to solve the many problems presented by an era of obscene wealth for the bosses and crumbs and hardship for the masses how workers prepare one another for strikes is crucial to their strength and success and with the ATU members having ratified their agreement late last week, peering back into the steps they took to build serious wins provides an example all workers can follow and extend to make these kind of transformative gains. And that here, here, yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. And I, I contrast it with um, the sentiment that you heard when the people got in their trucks and blocked all the roads
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that was almost, that was if you read the, the right wrong news sources you get the idea that these are the these are the salt of the earth canadians that have had enough and they're in charge and they're taking over where in ontario it's just the opposite you know well it, organized it, effort to restore the rights of of the workers as a group
1: Right. And and the key there is the kind of organizing, the deep organizing yes. that they did, not just calling a meeting and then agreeing to go out on strike. That's not how that works. Um, this Yeah, is Mac- it's, it, it, it's often how
0: it's done, but it's not how it works. That's, that's
1: exactly right. Yep. So <clears throat> McAlevey continues, though the pandemic was a huge factor in fueling the work toward the transit strike, The frustration felt by the members of ATU 1587 had its roots in the 2009 merger between their employer, GeoTransit, and Metrolinx, a semi-public creation of the Ontario government that pledged the things all privatization schemes promise, quote, to improve the coordination and integration of all modes of transportation, end quote, where cost-cutting management would ensure that transit projects are built faster helping to improve service to customers, end quote. The neoliberalism, this is what we're, mm-hmm. you know, what she's right. talking about. But according to Sarah Bailey, who has worked for Geo Transit for 11 years and whose mother-in-law had worked there for 35 years, quote, we weren't able to offer the kind of customer assistance that we used to because the new management cut staff. It was heartbreaking for us not to provide the assistance we used to offer, end quote. These worsening conditions took an even sharper turn during the pandemic as transit workers were asked to do even more with less, like all the workers who kept society and the economy functioning as others stayed at home. The crush of pandemic-era work is what sparked Alex Jackson to go from being a passive member to an active participant in solving his and 2,200 other frontline workers' problems. Jackson, like Bailey, became one of the workers who volunteered for the ATU local 1587's contract action team. In early February, he, along with 52 other worker activists, took part in their union's training program to learn effective ways to communicate with their co-workers as they developed their plan to win the contract they needed, one that would end contracting out of tasks crucial to driver and passenger safety, resolve some bad contract language that left bus operators sitting for two hours at a time in half-pay status before their next route began and stop the steady erosion of jobs in the system, one retirement at a time. The training, in Jackson's words, focused on, quote, how to be effective at talking with our coworkers, how to identify and solve obstacles, how to relate, be compassionate, and try to see where our less involved members were coming from, end quote. This is very important part of McAlevey's mm-hmm. training as well. It's the one-on-one structured organizing conversation, which is right. really at the heart of organizing. Uh, <clears throat> so Jackson uh, told the nation, uh, this team became the group that came up with the actions to take to win our collective agreement. For me, it was an extension of work as a customer service agent. But in this case, I wanted to help my coworkers be informed and involved, end quote. Having learned and practiced their skills in February, in early March, they launched a negotiation survey to reach out to all workers about their priorities, ensuring that workers took ownership of the demands they were making. This was followed by an April email action to the employer, and then the launch of a majority petition, where the strength of the workers' organization was being tested and painstakingly assessed. How many were participating in each action?, Where were they strong or weak? Where did they need to focus more energy? In late April and May, they began reaching out to the public with flyers, explaining to geo transit riders, what was at stake in the workers' negotiations. They were educating their customers early in the contract campaign in preparation for a hard fight, a hard fight that might eventually result in a strike, not as happens far too often in less well-planned strikes, playing catch-up once they were already walking the picket lines. Mm-hmm. Mm. A typical customer flyer explained, quote, the workers are not asking for the world. They want a commitment from Metrolinx that it will not contract out good union jobs to create lower-paying positions. These issues affect everyone, not just transit workers. Across Canada and the world, privatization in transit has consistently resulted in the public paying more in taxes for increasingly worse service, Mm -hmm. end quote. And Bailey explained and added in, this is public transit, not a private company, yet Metrolinx is bringing private companies to come in and do the work. I don't think people really understand how much of their tax dollars are being directed away from improving the service to private companies making money off of this, end quote. With each action the workers took, they were building their confidence to challenge their management together, one action at a time. It's this kind of deliberate scaffolding of the organizing process that enables supermajority collective action. McAlevey continues, By June, with their contract expiring and and knowing down to the individual that they were ready to get a majority of coworkers to take action, the workers affixed a new bright red button on their uniforms, declaring simply, Strong Contract Now, ATO 1587. This action happened to be a game-changer in the contract fight, and not only because it helped workers see just how many of their core workers were willing to take this risk with them. On the first day of the button campaign, a manager at Union Station took a bag of buttons and threw it into the garbage and ordered all the workers to take their buttons off claiming it was a violation of their uniform policy. This was not true, as it is not in the U.S. either. Workers have a right to wear non-disparaging buttons and stickers on the job. However, ATU 1587 immediately kicked into gear with a lawyer's letter explaining that management had better get the buttons out of the trash can and honor the workers' rights to wear them. To Jackson, this was the moment he and his coworkers realized their power, he said that that was union busting, and the result kind of had our campaign spread like wildfire, in a sense that our entire membership saw management as trying to stop us from tang- taking action, end quote. Knowing not only that they were within their rights, but that they had the numbers to enforce them um, was a really big moment uniting all the workers, Jackson continued, That action and management's intransigence on the core issues of strong security language set the stage for the workers to vote to authorize a strike in late June into early August, late July into early August, Mm -hmm. resulting in majority participation in the strike vote. With 55% of all workers participating, they delivered a 93% yes vote. In negotiations in September, Management accidentally said out loud the part they are normally disciplined enough to keep private. That is, MetroLink's management saw making more money at the expense of public service quality and workers' lives and livelihoods as its priority. <laughs> kind of, kind of like uh, the U.S. Postal Service at this point. Um,
0: well, campaign. <laughs> you
1: don't have to bring them up too, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, the yeah the. The neoliberal management involved. They're they're looking to make money at the at the cost of reducing service. Um, Campaign leaders are
0: many, many, many.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's it's it's this is one of many examples. Uh, McAlevey continues. Campaign leaders quickly blasted this out to their co-workers in an email and printed it in flyers, enraging the workers and adding new fuel to their commitments to fight for union jobs and the public services they provide. As frustration grew in negotiations with management stating unequivocally they would never agree to strong language against contracting out or any of the related job security measures the transit workers were determined to achieve, management made its final offer in late October. The ATU 1587 leadership put that final offer to a vote by the membership, who resoundingly rejected it on November 4th with 68.3% turnout and 81% voting it down, decisively rejecting management's final offer, it was clear as day that if the workers stood together behind their demands at the table, they could win. For an employer to admit their final offer was a bluff, they needed to be convinced that workers' unity in rejecting it isn't also a bluff. And a blowout rejection margin like this made that obvious. Because of the careful and smart escalation over the course of a year, the geotransit workers knew they were ready to walk out proud and united if the employer didn't agree to resolve their core issues over the weekend. As it turns out, management didn't even bother trying, vastly underestimating the workers and failing to see the broader movement growing around the education workers' strike. By midnight on Monday, November 7th, the geotransit strike was on. By sunrise, they were marching in front of Union Station as school closures were hitting for a second defiant day. On the cube front, the premier caved, realizing he wasn't forcing 55,000 mostly women workers in the education system to back down, and conceded in an early morning press conference saying he'd repeal the anti-worker strike legislation. The mass movement of activists ready to support the education workers quickly pivoted to support the transit workers, whose strike was still on. For the next four days, as the education workers went back to negotiations, the geotransit workers captured the public support with high-energy picket lines and solidarity actions by other workers inside the broader transit system including a strategically crucial tip-off by rank-and-file rail workers about all the ways the geotransit metro managers were planning to try to get around the strike solidarity is wonderful uh, workers across unions were outsmarting the bosses and winning by the fourth day of the transit strike with much media attention still focused on the education workers the transit workers achieved even stronger anti-contracting out language than they had initially demanded i've had that experience once um and it came it, it came from very persistent and long time organizing um, they ended the odd shift that kept bus operators at half pay they won guarantees that no worker would be shifted from their current jobs to any other lesser paying jobs Plus, a guarantee that any rearrangement of workers' employment would safeguard their full pay and benefits, and they secured a ban on contracting out for life of the new contract.
0: That's significant.
1: Yep. Yeah. Huge wins. Yeah. So, so how does McAlevey
0: see the workers accomplishing these amazing victories?
1: I'll well, keep it short and sweet. Yeah. Um, I don't know about short, but it'll be sweet. (laughs) Um, So that's a great question. And McAlevey answers this way. The deep organizing for mass worker participation in setting demands, building a worker structure unit by unit, and planning and exercising strike strategy was fundamental to the power of both strikes and both wins. For the transit workers, the result was a tremendous contract. For educators, it was defeating the legislation. We cannot know for sure if the COOP contract was a win without knowing the details of how the workers vote on it. Interestingly, and by the way, I, I haven't had the time to check that out, um, but we will report on that in the next show. Um, <clears throat> Interestingly, this is uh, McAlevey again, the two unions also share one similar weakness a reversal of best democratic practice. Transparency in the case of the educators. In open negotiation by the transit leaders. The educators had been practicing transparency and then shifted to a media public blackout. The local leaders of the transit workers initially planned open negotiations, then reverted to a more typical small committee, um, and this left a bad taste in some members' mouths. Still, as McAlevey says, the fundamental lesson couldn't be more clear supermajority strikes win. At the root of both these strikes was a series of laws that have been capping Canadian public sector pay raises at zero to 1% in education for a decade. (laughs) That's wonderful. Yeah, that's like it's really bad. Uh, And since 2019, across the entire public sector, that's neoliberalism at work in Canada. Even before the current inflation, the House of Labor could have united around overturning this legislation in the same way it united in supporting the education workers in overturning the anti-strike law. If unions can demonstrate their capacity to strike, alongside the capacity to think and act collectively across a labor market, the kind of unity Ontario labor produced over the past few weeks could be laser-focused on making real wage gains ending privatization schemes that keep gobbling up taxpayer money and bringing pro-worker solutions to the affordability crisis in our communities. Premier Ford is likely to keep asserting anti-worker wage caps and using strong-arm tactics as subsequent unions go into negotiations. This fight is far from over. The deep organizing and cross-union solidarity glimpse in the past few weeks will be crucial moving forward, and to ensuring the gains these strikes have brought in sight don't evaporate. There's no reason to rely on the increasingly hostile courts or passively accept draconian wage caps or anti-strike laws. Even pro-labor governments are under constant pressure by business to rig collective negotiations against workers, and once in office, may many take the initiative on their own. Employers regularly use their power to create crises for entire communities by cutting services, laying off workers, and relocating to places where they can use tax tax dollars to cut costs. And and, and what comes to mind was when uh, Rock 10, which was the last owner of the Frenchtown pulp mill, when they left, it was their decision, but they imposed uh, huge costs on the Missoula community. Um, And they shouldn't have been able to get away with it. Um, But Workers United can can beat the boss, even if that boss is the government. In In order to reverse decades of decline, workers need to be able to build the power required to outweigh employer threats. With the U.S. Supreme Court taking up Glacier Northwest versus Teamsters 174, which would gut strikes by making workers liable for employers' losses, um, and anti-protest laws passing in the UK, workers in Britain and the U.S. will need to follow and expand on what made these Canadian examples successful. This means scaling up the concentrated power of solidarity, backed by methodically built organization, to the size of the demands we make and the forces lining up against them. Workers everywhere can thank the mostly women's, women workers in Ontario for showing how to overcome lawfare attacks on workers' rights. Likewise, we can learn from the methodical work by the transit workers how to not just temper but, de- but defeat privatization and secure protections for good union jobs for the future. End quote.
0: That is hopeful news, and I I had to experience a declining value of labor negotiations. At a certain aerospace union er, <laughs> at the Pacific Northwest, where we, in the 80s, we were a force to be reckoned with. And it seemed with each successive decade, um, we were cowering more and more and more to, you know, the corporate quest for ROI.
1: Right. Right,
0: ROI is king in French.
1: <laughs> that's yeah, that's pretty good, Jim. Um, we'll, we'll have to use that one. Um, Keep me around, <laughs> Yeah, it's Good. Well, um,
0: are you there, monsieur?
1: Yeah, why don't you go ahead and just and close do the closing page 20, okay.
0: As is our theme here, we promote the cause of strong democratic unions. Besides the third wave workers of Missoula at Black Coffee Roasters, there are efforts to do more union organizing in Western Montana, among other service industry and other workers as well.
1: That's right, Jim. There are six more work site organizing drives happening here in Missoula this month with support from the Western Montana Workers Alliance. Anyone who works in Western Montana who is interested in organizing, and by the way, we we definitely advocate uh, McAlevey's uh, uh, resuscitated CIO methods, among others. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, anyone who works in Western Montana who is interested in organizing or knows someone who does, we you all know someone would like <laughs> to have a better work spot, you can find support and practical help by calling or emailing the Western Montana Workers' Alliance. There are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. You can contact the Western Montana Workers' Alliance at westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-N-M-T-W-A at gmail.com or by leaving a message at 406 924 3830 That's 406-924-3830. And thanks, Jim. Oh, the pleasure is
0: all ours. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, And the listening audience.
1: Yeah. And the listening audience. Well, and yeah, we want to thank everyone who's listening. Um, Please make a contribution to Missoula community radio and help keep all this great programming on the air. Just go to our new website at www.1015kfgm.org. That's www.1015kfgm.org. And you can make it there. Most everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time. So please volunteer a few dollars. (laughs) A few dollars. (laughs) (laughs) That would be. There's There's a guy in Vienna that's saying.
0: Uh, That's interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, keep your daughters at home. Um, It's the dollars that we want, the money. Um, Thanks, everyone. Uh, Please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%.
2: It's coming to America first. The cradle of the best and of the worst. It's here they got the range and the machinery for change. And it's here they got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family is broken. And it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental way. Democracy is coming to value. It's